Scary Mysteries Twisted Twos, Brian Schaefer and Isaac Zamora. Tales of hauntings, murder, and scary mysteries. Every week, Twisted Twos dives into a pair of uniquely terrifying true stories that are worthy of a more in-depth look. For this week, we focus on the story of a man that walked into a bar and simply vanished, and a 31-year-old serial shooter from Washington State. Get ready for Scary Mysteries Twisted Twos. Number 1. Brian Schaefer On April 1st, 2006, spring break was just around the corner and every college kid was gearing up for it. In the town of Columbus, Ohio, students at Ohio State University were excited about the partying days ahead, a break from the pressures and stresses of schoolwork. On the night of March 31st, medical student Brian Schaefer also decided to unwind. Brian was 27 years old with a bachelor's degree in microbiology before he had headed off to med school. He was in his second year, and while the workload and exams were tough, Brian was also going through some personal grief. Just a few weeks prior, he had lost his mother Renee to a rare and rapidly forming cancer that destroyed her body. Despite the heartbreak, however, Brian was pushing forward, and come that Monday, he had plans to head to Miami to celebrate spring break with his girlfriend Alexis. Initially that night, he had plans to meet with his brother Derek and his girlfriend, but they canceled. So earlier in the evening, he met with his father, Randy, instead for dinner. Randy noted Brian looked tired, which wasn't unusual after spending all-nighters cramming for exams. And Randy felt Brian shouldn't go out that night, but kept his reservations to himself and didn't tell him. By 9 p.m., Brian met up with his former roommate, William Clint Florence, at the Ugly Tuna Saloon a seafood restaurant with a second-floor bar near the South Campus Gateway Complex close to High Street. The two moved around, hitting up various bars in the area, drinking beers and taking shots. After midnight, they ran into Clint's friend Meredith, who mentioned a live band playing at the Ugly Tuna. All three went back to the original pub and were seen on surveillance at around 1.15 a.m. At some point, Brian became separated from Clint and Meredith, then at 1.55, Brian was seen just outside the bar talking to two young women briefly before moving off camera to head back inside. By 2 a.m., the bar was closing down, but Clinton and Meredith couldn't find Brian. They searched for him amidst the crowd and then waited outside, but when they couldn't find him, they just figured he simply went home ahead without telling them. Over the weekend, Brian's girlfriend Alexis tried calling him to discuss their vacation, but the calls kept going straight to voicemail. She tried again later in the afternoon, but still nothing. Randy, Brian's father, visited his apartment and found everything in order. His car was there, his bed was made, but Brian still wasn't there. He then called his other son Derek to help join in the search. When Brian still hadn't showed up by Monday, when he and Alexis were supposed to leave for Miami, Randy filed a missing persons report with the police. Soon, missing posters were put up and the ugly tuna was combed inside and out for clues as to what could have happened to Brian. Various canine units were dispatched, primarily searching through the Olentangy River that snaked through Columbus, and cadaver dogs also looked through the campus grounds as well. Every surveillance video in the area was scrutinized by police, and even though they could account for every person that went inside and then later left the ugly tuna, it was only Brian that was not seen leaving the bar at all. 
A camera positioned at the emergency exit was examined too, but Brian wasn't in it. Since the building that the bar was in was under construction, some believe Brian may have used a temporary freight elevator that had no surveillance. But police noted that once you step outside, the nearby bars had surveillance cameras and would have captured anyone leaving the building. All of those cameras were dead ends as well. Police interviewed Meredith and Clint, the last two people who were with them. Meredith took a polygraph and passed, while Clint refused to take one at all. Although people found that suspicious, Clint was forthcoming with information about that night. Eventually, Brian Schaefer's case went cold, and while leads were continuously pouring in, none of them ever panned out. Various hoaxers also had their laughs at the expense of the family's grief, with some saying Brian was killed, and another that he simply ran off to live on a tropical island, Brian's lifelong dream. Six months after he disappeared, his girlfriend Alexis continued calling his phone, hoping he would answer. Time and time again, it would lead straight to voicemail since its battery was dead. But when she called in September of 2006, the phone actually rang. She was nervous, but no one answered. Brian's phone registered at a cell tower 14 miles north of Columbus. The mobile company believes it may have been a glitch, but others suggest that this shows Brian is alive. There are also those who believe that maybe he hadn't left the ugly tuna at all. He may have been killed and his body stuffed and hidden somewhere. Others say he may have been intoxicated and accidentally slipped into the river and drowned, or worse, killed and then dumped there. By September of 08, Brian's dad had died from an accident during a storm. This only left his brother Derek to continue the search for his missing brother. Despite the speculations, stories of Brian Schaefer's disappearance have become somewhat of a legend in the Ohio area. However, today, there's still no trace or solid clues leading to what actually happened to him. Number 2. Isaac Zamora Before 31-year-old Isaac Zamora began his shooting rampage in Washington's Skagit County, his parents held sitting vigils at various psychiatric clinics and state offices hoping to get someone to help assess their son's mental health. When they finally succeeded, the psychiatrist told them he could offer a place for him to stay, but added, he's got to act up before we can do anything. The following day on September 2, 2008, Isaac went on a shooting rampage killing his neighbors, a local sheriff, injuring several others and leading police on a 16-mile chase along the highway. Zamora lived in Algier, a small town with just 400 people in it. Prior to the killing spree, he had been in trouble with the law several times for drug possession, vandalizing property and other minor offenses. Police never considered him a major threat, but those who had encountered him knew that something was very off with the man. One neighbor described him as always flying high on something. He would often talk about random things including secret groups, drugs, and more. The Skagit County Sheriff, Ann Jackson, also recognized this and extended her efforts to the family hoping she could help out with Zamora's mental health problems. Denise Zamora described her son as an easygoing person, but over time he slowly grew aggressive, would talk and laugh to himself, and even disappear for days on end. She attempted to seek help countless times, but was always shunned. They couldn't afford a private psychiatrist, so the state's help was all she could get, but they failed her too. On the day of the murder, Zamora had just been released from prison, 
His first move was to break into Chester Rose's house, who was his neighbor. When he was found out, Rose called Isaac's mother along with the sheriff. Isaac then moved to another neighbor's house, stole a large knife and a prescription pill bottle, then moved to another neighbor's home where he took a handgun and a rifle along with bullets. After that, Zamora headed back to the first home he burglarized and shot Chester Rose. By this time, Sheriff Jackson had arrived and she was killed in the ensuing gunfight. Then Isaac went to another house and killed two more people, shooting them and then mutilating the bodies. He then took a pickup truck and drove to another house where he shot the homeowner, also killing his wife when she arrived home in her pickup. He then took the truck and encountered another person on the street. After attacking them with a knife, he eventually, for one reason or another, decided to let them go. Then he began driving along Interstate 5, randomly shooting at people that he encountered. He shot at five individuals during this last drive and one of them he fatally killed. Eventually though, Zamora pulled into the Skagit County Sheriff's Office where he was immediately arrested. At his trial in 2009, he pled guilty to four counts of aggravated murder and not guilty by reason of insanity on two counts of murder. This was a plea deal cut by the prosecution to ensure Zamora would be locked up for life. When he accepted, he wanted to remain at the Western State Hospital for the rest of his life where he knew he would receive treatment for his mental health problems. However, later on the law was changed which would see Zamora move to prison instead of the state hospital where they said he was a possible threat. Currently, he is housed at the Monroe Correctional Complex. Denise, meanwhile, believes that had her son received the help that she and her husband sought hard for, the tragedy could have been avoided. But that never occurred and it culminated in the gruesome shootings and the deaths of six people at the hands of her own son. So there were two of the strangest and most murderous stories around. The world can be a crazy place and Twisted Twos is always sure to show you why. If you enjoyed this video, then please remember to subscribe and check out some of our other videos we know you'll love. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.